We are covering Psalm 24 tonight. Uh, the King of Glory is what I've titled the message. Well, the question is, what makes a psalm a messianic psalm? And the answer is, it prophetically connects to the truth of the Messiah. As such, uh, psalm 24 is clearly a messianic psalm and also a royal psalm as it addresses the Messiah in royal kingly terms as the King of Glory. Someone as well said that Psalm 24 follows Psalm 22 and 23 like pearls on a string. That's good. Clearly, all three are prophetically linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, note we have this, what we commonly call a trilogy. Psalm 22, the Messiah's Savior. Uh, Psalm 23, the Messiah's Shepherd. And Psalm 24, the Messiah as Sovereign. Uh, note this basic outline of Psalm 24. Verses 1 and 2, we have the Lord as owner and sovereign over the world. And then verses 3 through 6, who may approach the Lord? I mean, he is this great Lord who can approach and be in his presence. And then verses 7 through 10, anticipation of the Lord of glory. Well, David was the human author of this psalm, but the occasion for him writing it is not spelled out. Uh, this psalm was clearly written in anticipation of the Lord, the King of glory, ultimately coming to the holy hill, which is clearly the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, with the question of who can stand there as a true worshiper. Now, some think this was written with the occasion of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which was a symbol of God's presence, and certainly written from David's perspective, that may have been true. But ultimately, we pretty much everybody agrees, this ultimately prophetically looks forward to the second coming, when Christ will enter into what Psalm 48.2 calls the city of the great king, that is Jerusalem. And there he will establish it as his kingdom capital and the worship center of the world. Well, let's pick it up, Psalm 24. It begins there, a psalm of David. So we are clearly told this is uh, written by David. <clears throat> Verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. The sacred covenant name Lord, Yahweh, is what's mentioned here. The earth is Yahweh's. And uh, this, uh, what the Jews consider the most sacred name for God, Yahweh, uh, is used six times in this psalm. So there's a, there's, a, there's a predominant emphasis here on this name, Lord, Yahweh. So this is a psalm about Yahweh showing that he is ultimately the king. And every knowledgeable Jew knew that the coming Messiah would be king, who would come to Jerusalem. Therefore, this psalm clearly shows that the Messiah king is also Yahweh. Thus, Messiah is clearly shown to be divine. Now, the Bible over and over emphasizes that the earth in its entirety and those who dwell therein ultimately rightfully belong to God. Genesis 14, 19 and verse 22 refer to God as, quote, possessor of heaven and earth. You see, we are his guests here. And uh, really, we've been, by grace, allowed to be stewards and custodians of it. But it's God's. Now, in terms of the world system, uh, Satan is said to be the, the god of this age in terms of the, the world system that follows him in rebellion. 
But in terms of the earth and, you know, everyone, God, God is the creator of all. Rightfully belongs to him. Verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. This verse emphasizes that God is the sovereign creator of the earth. The waters in the Bible are presented as a mighty force. But that God is sovereign over the waters. And as God, he controls all of nature. I mean, powerful waters. I mean, if you've seen, you know, the damage that great floods can do. Uh, you know, I call Psalm 29 the storm psalm. I, I love this psalm. Uh, but verse 3 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. And you go down to verse 10. It says, The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. As the sovereign Lord who is king over all. And the Lord sits as king forever. Well, David writes poetically, not scientifically, and pictures the earth as sitting upon the seas and the rivers. It's interesting. Uh, the earth co uh, consists of about 71% of it being covered by water. Uh, from outer space, it looks like a blue planet of water. We might call it planet water instead of planet earth. Uh, but... The issue here is the greatness of this God creating all of this, being sovereign over all of this. And the issue now becomes who can approach this great God who is the owner and creator of it all. He owns the entire earth, but he has chosen a special place in the world called Jerusalem. And more specifically, a certain special hill in Jerusalem called Zion, which literally means fortification. And God has chosen to have this place as his very special dwelling place in a unique sense. And we know God is omnipresent, but he has chosen this place in a special way. Note uh, Psalm 132, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Why did God choose this? Well, again, we're not told. He just did. Well, with that background, verse 3, we have this sovereign great God over all. Verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? You know, this special chosen place. Who can go in there? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Now, one commentator says here that, quote, David asks a question central to all theology. This is the great issue in life. Who can approach God at his holy hill? Who can stand in his holy presence? Who can have that level of fellowship with him? A footnote here. Commentators point out that the psalm here, Psalm 24, was evidently intended to be sung antiphonally with the priest asking the questions and then perhaps the worshipers responding back with these answers. And another note, a parallel to Psalm 24, 3 through 6 here is found in Psalm 15. The emphasis is that to worship God means to ascend up. You're going up to worship uh, God. It's an exalted experience. In Israel, all roads lead up to Jerusalem. The city of the great king is an exalted place because of who will ultimately reside there. 
and coming to the place of worship is to go up. In these Psalms, it is to ascend into the hill of the Lord. Well, as David goes on to describe who can approach the Lord in his holy place, it might seem, as we will go on to read the the following verses here, it might seem like these people who qualify to do so uh, are able to do so because of their own good character. But as we consider the whole counsel of God, we know that's not true because there is none good. Their character is a result of being born again, without which no one can see the kingdom, as Jesus said in John 3.3. The people David is describing are those saints who have been changed by God, with the result that it now shows in their character. Those saints who come out of the tribulation are those who have, quote, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, as seen in Revelation 7.14. And this is true for all the saints who ultimately go into the kingdom and are able to stand before the Lord in His holy hill. So verses 4 through 6, which describe who ultimately will be able to approach the Lord in the kingdom, is really descriptive of those who have come to know the Lord and have been changed by him. This, by the way, was the entire point of John the Baptist's ministry. You remember what he, his whole ministry was about? Uh, John the Baptizer? Well, he was calling the people to repentance because the kingdom was at hand. In order to go into the kingdom, you have to be a repenter. John was calling people to repentance so they could go into the kingdom. It's on this basis that one can ultimately ascend into the hill of the Lord, which will be established at the second coming uh, at the temple site there. William MacDonald says, I think I got this on an overhead here. Yes. Uh, These verses describe the kind of people who will enter the kingdom and enjoy the thousand-year reign of peace and prosperity. Uh, These are the believing remnant of Israel and the redeemed Gentiles who will go up to the temple in Jerusalem to worship. Who is it? What's, uh, what's descriptive of these people? Verse 4, he has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. The expectation of the scriptures is that those who have a saving faith will demonstrate it in their lives. As the reformers were known to say, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. And that's the emphasis here. It's descriptive of those who can approach the Lord in his holy place and ultimately have access in the kingdom. Clean hands refers to actions and a pure heart refers to attitudes or motives. Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who's going to see God? Well, the pure in heart. Well, again... We don't start out with a pure heart. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So if we're going to have a pure heart, we get there uh, through God's work in our heart. Having a pure heart is indicative of true repentance. In David's psalm, by the way, fundamental to the study of repentance is David's uh, sister psalms in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. We see his repentance after his fall into sin. Well, in David's uh, psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, he described the nature of repentance in this way. Notice what he said there. Psalm 51, 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, 
And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. He's talking about the heart. Talking about the heart. You want truth there. You you don't want all this deceptiveness and deceitfulness. True repentance comes clean before God in that sense. It's honest to God. That's the idea of confession, which, which the word confess literally means to agree with. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God concerning our sin. And that's where David came in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. This is to come to the place of truth in the inward parts where we confess our sin, where we admit it, where we own it. And then again, the sister Psalm, Psalm 32. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Well, well, who is it? Well, the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. And I make a direct corollary here, a direct connection here, between you desire truth in the inward parts and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is reflective of a pure heart, the person who has come to the place where they they have an honest heart before God. And then, of course, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I'm not not hiding it anymore. There's no more deceit. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgressions. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Note two things. David was no longer playing games and trying to hide his sin in a deceitful way. He came out with it. This is truth in the inward parts. This is the person in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is indicative of a pure heart. It's honest to God. To lift up your soul, when he says uh, to lift up your soul to an idol, to lift up your soul to something is to worship it or to put your trust in it. Uh, The next psalm, the very next psalm, which we're not going to cover because it's not a messianic psalm. uh, But notice how that psalm begins. Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Same language. Oh, my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. So this is descriptive of a true worshiper who has his heart aligned with God's truth. Lifting up your soul is to trust in him. Jesus, in explaining salvation and that it is of the Jews, said that God is seeking true worshipers. He said this in an evangelistic context to the Samaritan woman in John 4. Again, this is indicative of those who truly know God and are thus able to approach God in his holy hill. That's what's under discussion here. And then the phrase, uh, nor sworn deceitfully, uh, may carry through from the thought of not lifting up your soul to an idol. In that case, it would be the idea of swearing by a false god, which is consistent with idolatry. Others think it simply is emphasizing that this person renounces all falsehood, whether in relationship to God or fellow man. It is true that idolaters and liars are closely linked in Revelation 21.8. Note what it says there. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. An idolater is anyone who worships anything else other than the one true God. And liars are those who claim to know God, but don't. They are closely linked. John says liars are those who profess to know God, but their profession is contradicted by their practice. 
I mean, John's is a pretty strong, right? 1 John 2, 3, 4. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He says, I know him. I know him. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I know him. And does not keep his commandments is a liar. John, who wrote 1 John, also wrote the book of Revelation. I think that's the idea of a liar. One who claims to know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. And that's the point here in Psalm 24. Those who truly know the Lord show it in this way. They have clean hands, a pure heart. They do not lift up their soul to an idol, and they renounce falsehood. It is they who can approach the Lord because they are shown to be true worshipers. This person, verse 5, shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Those who live in accordance with verse 4 are blessed. And they are those who are accounted as righteous before God. Now again, righteousness is not based on the merits of how we live, but on the basis of faith, which then demonstrates itself in a changed life. This is consistent throughout the scriptures, by the way. Uh, the order is always faith first, and then the fruits that come from it. But truly, the person who lives a changed life shows that they are blessed and that they have received what the Bible calls imputed righteousness from God. Now, Paul is very clear in Romans chapter 4, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is the account of her righteousness. If you have righteousness, you don't have your own. You have imputed. It's, it's put to your account. On what basis? Because of faith. His faith is accounted for righteousness. That's what it says here. And then he gives the example, an Old Testament example. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Verse 6. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Selah. We kind of have a summary statement here in verse 6. He's been describing those who will be able to approach the Lord in his holy hill. And here he kind of gives a summary statement. Jacob here is poetic for the faithful remnant in Israel. They characteristically are those who seek God's face. And uh, Selah loosely translated means stop and soak this in. Uh, again, this is the crux of the whole issue. In summary, this is what defines those who truly know the Lord and will be able to approach the Lord in the kingdom. Amos 5, 6 says, Seek the Lord and live, showing that this is what results in life. And those who do this live accordingly, as we see in verse 4. To seek is essentially synonymous with trust. Uh, note here in Psalm 9, 10, Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who seek God give evidence of knowing God because they have put their trust in him. Well, having established who is qualified to approach the Lord, namely those who seek God's face and demonstrate that in a changed life, David then anticipates the king coming to Jerusalem, which will be fulfilled at the second coming as Christ comes to set up his kingdom. Verse 7, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. David here speaks in poetical language. 
that anticipates the king of glory coming to Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus comes, he's going to set his foot down where? Well, Zechariah 14.4 says he's going to set his foot down on the Mount of Olives, which is where? Just outside of Council Bluffs here? Um, No, quite a ways out. Just outside of Jerusalem, like a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. But I want you to note something very carefully. Who is this one who's going to set his foot down on the Mount of Olives? We know it's Jesus. But I want you to catch this in Zechariah 14, 3 and 4. I don't have it on the overhead, but listen. Zechariah 14, 3 says, Then the Lord, that's Yahweh, will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet, whose feet? The Lord who goes forth to fight. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Whose feet? The Lord, Yahweh. So the Messiah is here called Lord, Yahweh. It is the Lord whose feet will set down on the Mount of Olives. That's what the text says. And every knowledgeable Jew knew that from there he will make his grand entrance into Jerusalem. As Zechariah plainly makes evident in the previous chapters. Note this. Zechariah 1.16. Therefore thus says the Lord, Yahweh, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. Who's returning to Jerusalem? The Lord, the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 2.10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord, Yahweh. Zechariah 2.10, Zechariah 8.3, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts. The, you ready for this? The holy mountain. The same mountain we're talking about here in Psalm 24. Who is the king who is the Lord who enters into Jerusalem? Well, that combination of king and Lord that enters into Jerusalem can be none other than the Messiah himself who is ultimately shown to be the God-man. And this truly will be the triumphal entry. David poetically appeals to uh, the everlasting, better the ancient doors to be lifted, which is a grand way of saying, let the gates of Jerusalem open wide to receive the glorious king. The one who is coming is the king of glory. And as he nears the gates... They are summoned to raise themselves to honor his entry. Again, this is a poetic way of emphasizing the superiority of the one entering. Now, it seems like we should maybe pause now and sing, The King is Coming. What do you think? That would be a great thing. We're not going to do it, but it's just a great, it would be a great idea. Verse 8, who is this King of glory? Ah, that's a good question. 
We've answered it already, but who is this king of glory? The Lord Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This is the great question. Who is this king of glory? The Jews knew that Messiah would come as king. Every Jew knew that. And if they were paying any attention, they should know that he comes from glory with glory. You know, the Jews knew that this uh, was a messianic text from Daniel 7, 13, 14. I was watching the night visions and behold, one like the son of man. That's a messianic title. It was Christ's favorite title for himself. Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days and brought him near before him. And there was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Furthermore, they should have known that the Messiah is not only a king, not only the seed of David, but also the Lord himself. I mean, their own scriptures were very clear on this point. Kind of amazes me how, how weak even the average evangelical presentation of Jesus is. Very wimpy on his lordship. But that's not, the, that's not what the scriptures are about. Uh, note uh, this messianic text. A key messianic text in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name. This is who he is. This is his name by which he will be called. The Lord Yahweh, our righteousness. That's who he is. That's who this king is. That's the king of glory in Psalm 24. He is the Lord Strong and mighty. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. You know how many battles the Lord has lost? None. He's mighty in battle. As it says in Exodus 15, 3. You know, you got all uh, Pharaoh's soldiers out there and their heads are bobbing up. (laughs) They're all drowned out there. And it says in Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is a man of war. And he is strong and mighty. You really don't want to take him on unless you want to be a loser. A total loser. Now he came the first time in humility, in meekness and mildness. But the next time he comes, it will be with power and glory as a mighty warrior. Mighty in battle. We read about it. Revelation 19 Speaking of Jesus Christ at his second coming, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Yep, he's coming. He's going to strike them. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself, note the he himself, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who is this King of glory? It is Jesus Christ who is the Lord mighty and strong who comes mighty in battle, defeating all of his enemies. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up. 
You everlasting doors, you ancient doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Into his rightful place. This is the city of the great king. Psalm 48. Let him in. At Jerusalem, there, were, there was an ancient gate called the Golden Gate. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you've, you've seen this gate. And it is magnificent. But you know, there's an interesting little historical fact about that gate. It's walled in. It's walled in. You can't open the doors. It's walled shut. You see, when the Turks learned that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem, supposedly through this gate, they walled it in to keep him out. Here it is. See that, that golden gate? It's all walled up. You can't get through there. Let me ask you. You think it'll keep the Messiah out? Oh, no. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you ancient doors. And the king of glory shall come in. And he will come in. Verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The refrain again. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Again, we have this proverbial question, who is this king of glory? That's the ultimate issue. And the resounding answer comes back, he is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory, Selah. It could not be more clear. The king of glory is himself Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, which is to say the, the Lord of the armies of heaven. He controls all the powers of heaven coming with all the power of heaven behind him. This is who he is. This is the king of glory, Selah. Stop and soak this in. There is tremendous repetition throughout this short messianic psalm. We've already mentioned Yahweh is named six times, Lord, six times. First attributed to him as being the owner and sovereign creator, and then the messianic king of glory. This shows that the Messiah is, in fact, God himself. He is Yahweh. This is who this king of glory is that will one day be received into Jerusalem in all of his glory. He is named as Lord and called the king of glory five times in verses 7 through 10. It's impossible to overstate and to overemphasize how great this king is. I can't wait to worship at his feet. And of course, I'm a true worshiper even now. But to see him in all of his glory. You know, I love that. And I look out my window in the morning. And perhaps today, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And then that last part. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm going to Jerusalem. You know why? Because that's where the Lord's going. That's where he's going to set up his capital. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe he'll dispatch me to go someplace else and do something. Whatever. He's the king. I'm just a you know, servant. But I know I'm going to get there. We're headed there. He is named the king of glory five times in verses 7 through 10. Now, Jewish tradition. This is a very interesting uh, point here. 
Jewish tradition says that this psalm, the rabbi said that this psalm, Psalm 24, was sung on the first day of the week, every week, in the temple services for this purpose, to emphasize who is worthy to participate in worship. Well, the irony, if that is true, the irony may well be that as Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, in what is called the triumphal entry, that the priests may well have been leading the worshipers in singing Psalm 24. The very day that Jesus was being officially presented to Israel as her Messiah, as he rode in to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Sadly, they were oblivious to the significance of it all. But the next time, the next time, no one's going to miss it. Isaiah 52, just as many were astonished at you, speaking of this coming Messiah, many were astonished at you, his first coming, his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. It was astonishing to see what they did to this, this human being. Not the end of the story. There's a sequel. So shall he sprinkle, more literally startle, So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who is this king of glory? Imagine. It's the humble Galilean. It's the one who rode into donkey the first time. Jerusalem oblivious. In the 4th century, there was a Roman emperor known as Julian the Apostate. Perhaps you've read of him. He was an apostate, and he did everything in his power to try to subdue Christ's church and thereby defeat Christ. He removed all Christians that he could find from all forms of civil service. He made laws that said... The children of Christians could not be educated. He restored pagan temples. He sought to persecute Christians greatly, stamp out the Christian faith. But then Julian had a little problem. He got into a war with the Persians. And as he lay dying, he addressed Jesus personally saying, So you have finally won, Galilean. Norbert Leith says, this symbolizes the surrender of all the great rebels to the one who will have victory. Psalm 24 shows the great triumph of the great king of glory, at whose name every knee will bow. Things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. In Psalm 24, there are two great essential questions. Number one, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And number two, who is this king of glory? And they go together. It is the person who recognizes the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of glory, as the Lord God Almighty, who in the end will have access to the Lord in the kingdom. This is the stuff of saving faith, right? John wrote the entire Gospel of John to what end? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament, and that He is the Son of God. In believing, you may have life in his name. You have to believe in him for who he is as, as Lord, as Yahweh, as God, as the promised Messiah. 
Thus it is true believers in Jesus as Lord and Savior who may dwell in fellowship with him at his holy hill. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And I submit to you, his name is Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. Selah. Let's have our closing song. Let's stand together. <clears throat>